We're going to study this morning, so let's start in Genesis chapter 17. For the next two weeks, we are going to be looking at what I'm calling the defining issues of our lifetime. These are the issues that are related, um, the, the key issues that are related to this election, especially as it uh, relates to us as Christians. Now, there are varying opinions on how involved Christians should be in this election and whether we should even vote, because one candidate does not have clearly defined spiritual beliefs and, in fact, has advanced many policies that contradict the Bible, and the other candidate belongs to a religion that both contradicts biblical Christianity and adds to it. So how do we decide and what do we do? Are we supposed to vote? Should we just sit this one out and hope for the best? And um, I want to address that this morning because the fact is uh, that one of these men is going to be president of the United States. There's no question about that. There's no third candidate. One of these men is going to be in charge. And while both of them have their issues and beliefs that we can't necessarily fully agree on as Christians. Um, it doesn't change the reality that one of them is going to lead the country. There has not been a, a strong biblical Christian candidate um, in, in many years, if ever. And I'm pretty skeptical that one's ever going to be nominated because the press is so biased and, and the state of our country is such that um, I, I doubt anybody would get through. So, as much as we would love a true believer uh, to be leading our country, that's not a reality. So what should we do? I believe the answer is not to not vote. I believe the answer is just the opposite. I believe that we should absolutely vote, and in doing so, we should vote our beliefs. We should vote biblically. Now, I rarely, if ever, get political, and I really don't plan on getting political this morning. Um, what I want to do is talk about why we as citizens of this country, um, should vote biblically. Now, you've seen in your bulletin that we've included a voter's guide this morning, and we want to just give you an awareness, if you don't have it already, and I'm pretty sure you do, um, and some of you have even voted already, but if you don't have an awareness, you haven't been following as closely as you want to, this will help you just get a very um, clear understanding of where the presidential candidates stand on the primary issues of our country. And by taking part in this by voting, we have the opportunity to have a say. We can influence the direction of our country. We can influence it in terms of the economy or foreign policy or moral issues or even who gets appointed to the Supreme Court. And we should evaluate candidates, uh, and this includes down to, to state races and, and county races. We should evaluate candidates by where they stand on the issues in terms of a biblical standpoint whether they defend what the Bible says or whether they deny what the Bible says. Now, Robbie Zacharias um, talks about this. He says that how you should vote should be determined by your priority and biblical uh, positions. He said, if you're choosing between those for whom Christ is not supreme in salvation, you have to choose the one who will give you the best moral soil in order to live for Christ and live out your faith. So what I want to do over the next two weeks is talk about and study seven critical issues that should matter to Christians. Seven critical issues that should matter to us in terms of our belief as those who know and love and trust in Jesus Christ. This week we're going to look at global issues, specifically in terms of Israel, Islam, and governmental integrity. Next week we're going to look at moral issues, 
Abortion, marriage, personal liberty, and religious freedom. Now, the whole purpose and intent of doing this is so we will know what the Bible says. And we will know what the Bible calls us to do. Because the issues of our lifetime are drastically different than they have ever been at any time in history. And I believe that they are strong evidence that the Lord's return is imminent, that we need to get ready, that we need to redeem the time because the days are evil, and we need to be doing the work of ministry that Christ calls us to do in terms of evangelism and preparing people for final judgment. And I don't mean to be dramatic when I say that, but nothing is left to be fulfilled. Everything is prepared, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But let's just get a little bit of history. This is going to kind of be a a history lesson this morning, okay? I want to encourage you to take some notes. I want to encourage you not to just stare up here, but but write some things down, interact with the text a little bit, because there's going to be a lot of information. And I need to take a deep breath because I need to do this quickly. But there's a lot of history and a lot of things we need to understand about what the Bible tells us. A hundred years ago in our nation, we were between two world wars. Communism and fascism and socialism were on the rise in our nation, and there was a time of great economic prosperity. Seventeen years later, we had the collapse of the Great Depression and the fall of the stock market. So there was a a, a time of prosperity and then a time of depression. And according to historians, a hundred years ago, Americans wanted three things. They wanted an end to labor problems, they wanted less immigration, And they wanted less government interference in their lives. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Over the last five decades, just going back 50 years, we have seen a slew of significant changes. We've seen the civil rights movement, the wars in Vietnam and Eastern Europe and Iraq and Afghanistan. We've seen changes in the Soviet Union and in Europe. We've seen scandals like Watergate. We've seen dramatic advances in technology that have literally changed the way the world functions. We've seen the decline of religion. We've seen social liberalization. And we've seen the rise of terrorism and militant Islam. Ironically, 50 years ago, Israel was very new. Israel had just come into existence 13, 14 years before. So, and yet so much of what relates today, even though Israel's only 67 years, 64 years old, what, so much of what's happening today points back to Israel, that tiny little piece of land in the Middle East. 9-11, terrorism, the Arab Spring, the threat of a nuclear Iraq, even this whole mess around the murder of our ambassador in Benghazi, all relates back to Israel. And I want to talk about this because what we're seeing in the news is the fulfillment of Scripture. And what we're seeing in the news should awaken us to what God has done, is doing, and will do uh, in relation to the Middle East and how it relates to us as Christians and even to us as a nation. We're the one nation that's really been Israel's greatest ally, and that becomes more and more uncertain in these days. And it's so important for us, as we look at this election, to vote biblically as it relates to Israel. Because Israel is not just any other nation. The Lord is abundantly clear in Scripture about the importance that He places in Israel. The fact that He blesses and curses people based on how, he treats, how we treat Israel 
and that he will protect her and Christ will someday rule from Jerusalem. Now, there's no way we can avoid that as Christians. There's no way we can say that it's not important. And as we look at world events in terms of Israel, it it has to uh, strike us as interesting at the very least that all this uh, attempt at, at control and all the nations of the Middle East are, are not worried about each other. They're just worried about Israel. Why is that? It's a tiny little speck of a nation. It's hard to even find on a world map unless you know exactly where it is. It, it's not like uh, Iran or Iraq or Saudi Arabia or Russia or Canada or Mexico. You can find those in an instant. But, but to find Israel... It's tiny, and yet everybody cares about us. So, let's ask the question at the outset. Why does Israel matter? Why does it matter to us as a nation? Why does it matter to us as Christians? Now, to answer that, we need to understand Israel's relationship with the Lord. And it starts here in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Let's start in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old... The Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish, notice there's certainty there. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to be your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will will be their God. Now, this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. I don't mean to be too simple this morning, but but maybe you don't uh, know about all this, so let me just lay it out. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. It's a binding promise that the Lord made with Abraham, and it has three distinct components. He says, I'll make you the father of a great nation, in fact, nations. I will bless you, and I will give you a specific nation as a land. I'll give you a, a, land, a piece of land for this nation. Now, this covenant was and is unconditional. The Lord declared that he would do it. It was certain that he would do it. And he decided to do it independent of anything Abraham had done, would do, or ever did. And I want you to notice that the covenant in verse 7 and 8 is specified as being everlasting. This is not something that was going to end. It was not something that was going to be conditional based on how Abraham acted. God declared it. It was going to happen. It was solely based on him. And there was nothing Abraham could do to mess it up. It was everlasting. And part of the everlasting covenant was that this land, you see it in verse 8, would be an everlasting possession. Now, those are all vitally important details especially the recipient of the covenant, which we'll talk about in a minute, and the uh, precise parameters of the land itself. Now drop down to verse 18. Because Abraham has a son, his name is Ishmael, we'll talk about in a minute, and Abraham says in verse 18, O God, 
that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, that he might be the one through which this happens. But God said, verse 19, no, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He will become the father of 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Now, Abraham had gotten a little bit ahead of the plan of God. Partly because Sarah was fearful and faithless, and partly because Abraham was impatient and somewhat incredulous. So upon Sarah's suggestion, Abraham had gone, because Sarah was old and she was infertile, she couldn't have children, he had gone and had a child with her servant Hagar. The name of that child was Ishmael. Now Abraham wonders here, is Ishmael the son of the covenant? Is he the one by which this is going to happen. But the Lord makes it absolutely abundantly clear over and over again that Abraham will have another son. His son will be with Sarah, and the son's name will be Isaac, and Isaac will be the son of the covenant. Now, I want you to notice in that text that there is no place whatsoever where it's even suggested that Ishmael will be connected to the covenant. In fact, the Lord goes out of the way to say, Abraham, that's not how it's going to work. It will be Isaac. It will always be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob would be renamed Israel later on to denote the father of the Jewish nation, the nation of God's covenant with Abraham. You with me so far? Good. Okay. Now, God does tell Abraham that Ishmael will become a great nation. And he tells Abraham that he'll watch over Ishmael and that out of him will spring forth this nation. And that has huge significance today because this is really the starting point of generations of conflict and division. Uh, Swing over one page to chapter 21. Because in chapter 21, in the first part, Sarah gets very insecure after Isaac's born. And she doesn't like the fact that Hagar and Ishmael are hanging around, that there's this other son that Abraham has had on her suggestion, remember. And she gets very insecure and she demands that Hagar and Ishmael leave. And though God helps them and protects them and watches over them, they get sent out into the wilderness. The only time that Isaac and Ishmael will meet again is in chapter 25 at Abraham's funeral. They come together, they bury their father, And they go their separate ways. And in chapter 25, it says that Ishmael's descendants settled in the east. They settled in what is Arabia at the time. So Isaac stays where Abraham is. Ishmael and his descendants go east. And the Bible says in chapter 25 that they did that purposely in defiance of Isaac's relatives. In other words, they bury their dad. Isaac stays there, Ishmael takes off, and as the generations play out, Ishmael's descendants purposely stay close to the east to to defy and, and kind of be an irritant and a rub to Isaac's descendants. That's the first tangible clue that we have in Scripture, that there's hostility and conflict 
between the Jews and the Arabs. And it dates all the way back to Genesis chapter 17. And it's partly because the covenant came through Isaac, the Lord favored him, the Lord favored the Jews, and partly because of the fact that he had given Isaac and his descendants this land that had very definitive borders. Now, as we've seen from the conflict in the Middle East over the last many, many years, and the fight over Israel and over Jerusalem, there's a lot of dispute, not only over land boundaries, but over whether Israel should even be able to possess the land. God gave two distinct pieces of land to Abraham. One is inside the other. Now in Genesis chapter 15, 18, you can write it down and look at it later. In Genesis 15, 18, he said he would give Abraham's descendants the land from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, all the way over to the Euphrates River and include the land of ten different nations. If you would put the first map up, guys, you can see the red line here is the border of this land that God says in Genesis 15, 18, that will be the land of your descendants. Now, that's a key word, and it's important to see that the Lord doesn't just specify Isaac. He specifies all of Abraham's descendants. So that would include Ishmael, and it would include the Arab people as well as Isaac. Got it? All right, now turn over to Numbers chapter 34. You miss college, don't you? At least there's not going to be a test, right? Numbers chapter 34. Now, when Israel is entering the promised land, okay, speed up, past Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way to Moses, Joshua, Israel's about to enter into the promised land. Moses is going to die on Mount Nebo as he looks over the promised land that he doesn't get to go into because he struck the rock twice. Joshua is going to lead the people in across the Jordan River when God's going to stand up the water. They're going to walk through on dry ground and put the 12 rocks, okay? So as they're about to enter into the promised land, the Lord gives very specific details about the boundaries of this land. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan, according to its borders, your southern sector. uh, Let's stop there. at Verse two, because in verses three, all the way to verse eight or nine, he names very specific boundary lines for the nation that was given to Isaac. Okay, first map showed us the boundary that was given to all Abraham's descendants. It includes part of Egypt, part of Iran, all the way down Saudi Arabia, and north up into Lebanon. But God says as they're entering the promised land, I'm going to give you a specific area of land that is distinctive to just Isaac and his descendants as the son of the covenant. If you'd put up the next map, we can see this one. You see that it's the, let me hop down here for a second. It's the red line that you can see. That's the specific borders that were given in in Numbers chapter 34 to Isaac and his descendants as the promised land. Now, I want you to mentally put that picture on your map because I'm going to show you another map in a second that will show you how that's been narrowed. So we've got the big triangle that God gave in Genesis chapter 15. We've got the narrower little piece that looks kind of like a bee 
that's listed in Numbers chapter 34. Now keep that up for a second. Because I want you to look at that. That is the only piece of real estate on the face of the earth that the Lord says, I have specific ownership of that. Now, we know that God owns everything. We know that it's all his. He created it all. He can take whatever he wants. But there is one special parcel of land. There is one little piece of land that he says, I have a unique relationship with that land. In Leviticus chapter 25, 23, he says, this land is permanently mine. In fact, you Jewish people, you're actually aliens here. You, you, you think you own it, but you don't. It's my land. This piece of real estate is owned by me. He gave it to Abraham and to his descendants through Isaac as a gift. Based on his unconditional covenant, it was not based on their faithfulness. And Deuteronomy 28 says their obedience or disobedience would not affect their eternal ownership of the land. It would just affect their relationship with him. To emphasize all this, I know there's a lot of facts. Take a deep breath. Okay. To emphasize all this, in 1 Samuel 13, he starts to change the name of the land from Canaan to Israel. Now, you'll notice if you watch the news or you read the newspaper or you go online or whatever, that the Arabs don't like to call it Israel. They like to call it Palestine. Now, that name, Palestine, was given by the Roman emperor Hadrian in A.D. 135. Why did he do that? He did that because he was angry at a Jewish revolt that had taken place, and he wanted to humiliate the Jews and emphasize to them that the land wasn't theirs anymore. So he took the name Palestina. Palestina, you bored yet? You're with me, right? Palestina is derived from Felicia. Felicia is the land of the Philistines. A thousand years before, in the time of David, who has an eternal covenant for a throne in Israel, a thousand years before, the Philistines were the arch enemies of the Jews. So Hadrian, in 135, says, we're going to take a name that will irritate them. We're going to take a name of Felicia, Palestinia. We're going to call it Palestine. We're not going to call it Israel. This was his attempt to, to kind of break God's covenant with Israel. Even at uh, 135 AD, he understood the importance of that. And it was an attempt to break that covenant. So anyone who uses the name today, Palestine, that's actually an affront to the Lord. It's actually an affront to, to the one who owns the land. And that relates to the third part of the covenant. The third part of the covenant, great nation, land, the third part of the covenant was, I will bless Israel. Now that was also an unconditional promise. And it was based on three purposes. God wanted his people to go into the land and to worship him and to show the blessing of trusting in the one true God. So the reason he takes them into the promised land is so that people of the world will know that God is faithful and that God is worthy of trust. The second reason is he wanted to give them his word. He wanted to show them his love and grace. And then third, he wanted them to be the human channel by which the Savior would come. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who would offer salvation 
to all who believe. So God sets aside land. He makes a nation, gives them a land, says, I will bless you. I will be your God. Multiple times in Genesis, he says, I'll be your God. I'll be your God. I'm going to be your God. Now, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your God. And he says, I will bless you and bring you into this land so the people of the world will live in fear and will understand that they need to trust the true God. The blessing was so important to God and it was so related in terms of Israel. Israel is so important to the Lord that he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. I care about you so much. I love you so much. I have a plan for you so much that I've not given up on, even though you've rejected me. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Now, what does all this have to do with us? 2012 in Wisconsin. Again, we have to think biblically. 1967, Israel won the Six-Day War. It was a fight between them and Egypt and Syria and Jordan, the three countries against Israel. And in six days in June of 1967, Israel won the battle. In a week of fighting, they took control of the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. It was a legitimate military victory. But since then, since 1967, the Arab world and other nations have demanded that Israel gives the land back. Now, put up the next map if you would, because I want to show you what's happened since 1967. The first map, upper left corner, is 1922. That was when Israel was promised that they would have land. In 1973, the second one, those were the ceasefire lines. The brown you see is Palestine, what's called Palestine. The green is the land given to the Arabs. And the, I'm sorry, am I right on the colors there? No, I'm sorry. The brown is the land under Israeli control. Okay, so the green is the Arabs and the brown is the Israelis. You can see as we go forward, 1974, 1975, they're withdrawing. 1979, the Camp David, remember Sadat and, and uh, Begin in the Rose Garden with Jimmy Carter? That was 1979. Now you see it's starting to shrink. 1982, the Camp David Accords, it shrunk even more. In 2000, Oslo declared withdrawal from the West Bank, so you can see it's starting to cut in. And then there was a unilateral withdrawal from Gaza that's down here in 2005. So in less than 100 years, Israel has gone from having a huge swath of land. 1967, they earned it based on their victory in the Six-Day War. But now, 34 years later, excuse me, uh, how many years is it? 67 to now, I should know. 44 years later, okay? Thank you for your help, by the way. 45 years later, you guys are great at math. 45 years after they legitimately won all this land, it's been taken back. Now, they didn't have to do that, but this is the extent that Israel has gone to to try to get the world to leave them alone and to have some degree of peace. Over the last three years, our nation has been one of the ones that has aggressively called for Israel to return to its pre-1967 borders, which means that we are asking them to evacuate the West Bank and East Jerusalem and hand them over to their enemies and to be Jewish-free zones. 
And to create a Palestinian state, which is the goal, to create a Palestinian state, our government wants the Palestinian Arabs to have a passageway from the West Bank, which is on the other side of the Jordan River, over to the Gaza Strip, which is down along the Mediterranean. To do that, you're still with me, right? To do that, they would cut Israel in two. And between the two sides would be their arch enemies that want want them not to be a nation. Now, this is a military strategy. It was used at Vicksburg in the Civil War. It was used by Hitler to defeat Poland. It was used by Stalin to create two parts of Berlin. But here's the problem with all of this. Israel's boundaries were established by the Lord. They are part of his eternal covenant with them, and it's a covenant that will not be broken. So our policy on Israel and and our demand not only has military and political significance, but it's got biblical significance. Okay, you ready to go to the next part? Knowing all of that, why does the rest of the world hate Israel? And why do the Arab countries not only pose a threat to them, but also to us, to our country, and especially to us as Christians? Turn back to Genesis 16 for a minute. Back in Genesis chapter 16. When Ishmael was born, the Lord said two things about him. When Ishmael was born, the Lord says two things about him. Look at chapter 16 and verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he'll live to the east with all his brothers. The Lord says two things. His hand will be against everybody and everybody's hand will be against him. In other words, there will be constant conflict between Ishmael's descendants and everybody else. The second provision was that he would live east of all his brothers, speaking of the Jews. Now, Arabia was east of Canaan, so Ishmael's descendants were called Arabs. And this is where what's going on in the world today becomes very relevant biblically because of the conflict created between Isaac's descendants and Ishmael's descendants. 15% of the world's 1.1 billion Muslims are Arabs. 15% are Arabs. But 90% of Arabs are Muslims. Now that's important to understand because within Islam, there are two beliefs that lie at the heart of the war, not only between the Arabs and the Jews, but between the Muslims and the non-Muslims, especially those who stand in support of Israel. Two things that Muslims believe. They believe that Ishmael and his descendants were included in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Let me say that again. Ishmael and his descendants were included in the covenant that God made with Abraham. The problem is, as we've studied, the Abrahamic covenant was given only to Isaac and his descendants. God says specifically in Genesis chapter 18 that Ishmael and the other sons of Abraham were excluded. That they were not part of this everlasting covenant. The second thing they believe is that Ishmael, uh, excuse me, that the Abrahamic covenant includes the land of Israel. And because they're descendants of the covenant, 
that the Arabs have a legitimate claim to it. Now, again, if you look at chapter 16, verse 12, you see that God specifically says they will go to the east, not within Israel, but to the east of Israel. That will include what is now Syria and Jordan and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. But it's not limited to that. If you go to the next map, I want to show you something you've probably seen before. All the green are the Arab nations of Asia and Africa. You see that little red dot in the middle? Can you see that in the back row back there? That little red dot's Israel. So all the green around, all the way over to Malaysia and Indonesia, all the green is Arab Muslim nations, and Israel's right in the center. Now, the claim of the Arabs is that they want that little red dot. They're not satisfied until they get that little red dot. And the expansion of this is not coincidental because Muslims believe that Muhammad was the descendant of Ishmael and because Ishmael was going to be a great nation promised by God in Genesis 17, they argue then that Israel, the land, is theirs and they have a right to occupy it. And if Israel won't give it up, they're going to take it. That's the conflict we're seeing. That's what's happening in the Middle East. And you would think that we as a nation would, would recognize not only that it's unbiblical, but also that it's unfair. And that it creates this great powder keg situation in the Middle East. Listen, Israel's nothing, uh, nothing to, to write home about in terms of... Uh, Good real estate. It's barren. It's very rocky. Most of it's desert. Jerusalem's a tiny little city. It would easily, easily, easily fit within Racine. So, so why does everybody care? Why does that little red nation matter to the rest of these people that own all this real estate? Well, it matters in terms of biblical prophecy. And you would think our nation would would say this is important that Israel maintain the integrity of its land. But our policy has been one of abandonment and approval of Arab aggressiveness. Now, we as a nation have said that the Jewish settlements on their own land are a hindrance to peace. We've cut a deal with Islamic states in 2010 trying to disarm Israel. In 2011, we set out a timetable with the U.N., calling for Israel to return to its pre-1967 borders, which are indefensible. At the same time, the government has de-emphasized the intent and involvement of radical Islam in the role of terrorism, and you know these things, you've seen this. We called Fort Hood a workplace violence incident. We've said that the murders in Libya were because of a video that few people had ever seen. When we were watching the attack in real time, we had troops that could have come, and we didn't send them even though we were asked. And this has become another defining issue of our lifetime. Is the integrity of the government real? Now, to be fair, the integrity of the government's been in question for many years, right? We all remember Nixon and going back. I mean, we know that integrity in government is an oxymoron. But at the same time, we're seeing that the truth has been obfuscated over the last couple months in terms of what's happened. Now, the president has promoted Islam far more than the Christianity that he said he believes. In Cairo in 2009, he said, and I quote, I've known Islam on three continents before coming to the region where it was first revealed. That word revealed is key. 
because Muslims believe that Allah revealed Islam to Muhammad through visions that came from Gabriel. In the speech that he gave, the president quoted the Quran five times. He always called it the Holy Quran. He said that Jerusalem should be the home for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And he talked fondly of the story of Isra, which is in the Quran, and in which, to quote the president, Muhammad, Jesus, and Moses, peace be upon them, joined together in prayer. Now, not only is that incredibly faulty theology, but the practical problem is there is no peace between Judaism, Islam, and biblical Christianity, and there's not going to be peace between Judaism, Islam, and biblical Christianity because Judaism and Islam hate each other because both strongly disagree with us about what we believe in Jesus Christ. The president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, said that Israel should be wiped off the map and threatened the country for supporting Israel. Now, Israel is the last impediment in the Middle East for what Islam wants to do. And Islam's goal is not just power. It's the advancement of their religious ideology to create Islamic governments throughout the world. And according to the Jewish press, the concern is not to gain countries, not to gain borders. The concern is a territorial expansion of their ideology in terms of people. Now, we've said Israel should give in. We've said Israel should just lay down and let everybody do what they want to do. But let's draw this to a close. No matter what our government does or what those who hate Israel do, there's one unassailable fact. God will protect, defend, and secure Israel. Israel will be harshly disciplined for their rejection of Christ, but they will, according to the prophecy of Scripture, still be restored and blessed at the end of time because that's what God told Abraham, and God doesn't break his covenant. He said to Abraham, you will have an eternal nation. I will be your God. It will be through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it will all center around Jerusalem, and it will center around the borders that I established now 5,000 years ago. Ezekiel 36 says Israel will be renewed for the sake of God's name. That this desolate wasteland will be refreshed and the cities will be rebuilt. And we've seen that happen, not we because we're not this old, we've seen that happen over the last 130 years. Israel used to be completely barren. In the 1880s, immigrants started to come back to Israel and the deserts were reforested and the land started to become more fertile, and they rebuilt the ancient terraces, and they restored the ancient cities, including Jerusalem. And then the Second World War happened, and Hitler wiped out half of the world's Jewish population. You would think half the world's Jewish population would essentially be the end of it, that there would really be no hope. But Isaiah prophesied about it in Isaiah 66, 8. He said, who has ever heard of such a thing? Who's ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? The answer to Isaiah's prophecy is yes. Because God, by his faithfulness, has kept his word to Israel. Now, six million people live in the nation of Israel. They are the top nation in terms of literacy and health and education and technology and agriculture and the military. 
Israel is an amazing nation that was almost nothing 150 years ago. And God tells us in Psalm 122, he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are not to sit on the sidelines and say, well, it doesn't matter and we don't have any control over it and our government's going to do what it's going to do. No, we actually do have a say. We're told, if nothing else, to pray for the peace of that nation. We're told to call on the Lord and ask him to help his people that he tells thousands of years ago, I'll take care of you. I'll be your God. I'll give you a nation. I will be yours. Let's look at one more thought. and We're going to pray. Zechariah chapter 12. Turn over there just for a minute. I guarantee you, you haven't been in the book of Zechariah recently, right? Anybody read through Zechariah? I haven't, so I'll be honest. Zechariah chapter 12, the end of the Old Testament. No matter what the world's plans are, the Lord is in control. And despite all the threats and the strategies and weak, misguided foreign policy, or however you want to look at it, the Lord knows what is going to happen. You there? Zechariah chapter 12, look at verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. By the way, that's not a coincidental sentence right there. The Lord wants to remind us, by the way, I control everything, just just in case you forgot. Okay? I spread out the heavens, I laid the foundation of the earth, and you're all here because of me. Okay? Just let's let's just get that established first and foremost. Okay? Now let's go to verse 2. Behold... Based on all that, because I'm in charge, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Drop down to verse 9. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Very specific. Not against Israel, but against Jerusalem. Now, notice what he says, and we'll be done. The Lord says at the end of the days, he will make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the people around it. The phrase in the Hebrew literally means a threshold of trembling and destruction. Okay, get that. I will make Jerusalem a doorstep, a threshold of trembling and destruction. Israel's enemies, when they try to take it, they're going to stumble and they're going to be crushed when they try to cross that line. Now, the Lord's not mincing words here, is he? You try to take my city, you try to take my real estate that I own, that I've declared is mine eternally. You try to take it, I'm going to crush you. You try to cross the threshold, you nations that think you're so wonderful, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to take you down. And I'm going to judge or support you based on whether you support Israel or don't support Israel. If you bless them, they'll bless you. I'll bless you. If you curse them, you got me to deal with. Now, why would God be so harsh? Because this is his. And Jesus himself says in Luke 21, 24, 
Jerusalem will be trampled on until by the Gentiles until their times are fulfilled. Jerusalem was returned to the Jews in 1967, and even though the Arabs are still fighting for control, that tells us that our time is essentially done, that Messiah is about to return, and God is about to say, it's my city. I'm done watching this. I'm done dealing with this. You nations that think you can take this, you got something else coming. It's my city, and I'm taking it back. The future of the world, I'm not using hyperbole, the future of the world literally hinges on what happens with Israel. That little tiny red nation among all those green nations. So the question before us, and I don't really have a conclusion today, I struggle to, how do you end this? Let me just close with this. Where do you stand on it? Knowing what the Bible says about it, where do you stand on it? Don't just think in terms of election. Listen, this, another election might come, might not come. We don't know. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. But don't just think about it in terms of an election. Look at it from your own theology and your own life. Do we understand what is at stake And are we preparing ourselves, listen now, for the Lord's return to receive his children? Because those of us that are watching and waiting and love him and trust him, we're going to be taken. And then God's going to say, now I'm going to deal with the rest of the world. Now I'm going to handle and judge all those that have stood against me. Are you ready? Are you ready? We could see in the next 10 days a change or we could see a continuation of the path. Either way, there are implications. Either way, we need to be cognizant and aware of what it means for us and what it means for the world. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you this morning because you are the God of all. As you remind us in Zechariah 12, 1, you put the heavens in place and you formed the foundations of the earth and you made each of us out of dust. We're not fearful this morning because we trust in you and because you are sovereign and you are Lord and you are in control and there's no one No one in heaven and earth that can challenge you. So we don't live fearfully this morning, but Lord, we want to live wisely. We want to live biblically and we want to make decisions biblically. And Lord, we ask you for our nation this morning. That you would give us wisdom. That we would make the right decisions, not because of a political party, not because of an agenda but because you say very clearly in Scripture, those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. Lord, we see the influences of other religions coming in, and we see the challenges that Israel faces. Lord, we pray this morning for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that your presence would be over that great city where Abraham almost offered Isaac where our Savior died and rose again, where Jesus will return and rule from that city. Lord, we pray for its peace this morning. 
we know even the Jewish people are not necessarily praying for that. But as those who trust in you and love you, we pray that you will work a magnificent work, that you will be shown to all the nations as you were when Israel went into the promised land, that you are the one true God and that you are the faithful, merciful God and that you will deliver and save those who trust in you. Lord, may your name be shown throughout the world. May you be praised and exalted. You can defeat any religion that stands against you. So Lord, as we saw in the video earlier, I pray that we would stand firm. I pray that we would be people that love you and trust you and serve you with every ounce of our being, that there would be no wavering and that we would put our confidence in you, that you will lead us and you will lead this world until it's time for you to come down and rule. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. Lord, for anyone here that is awakened this morning, I pray that their heart would be turned to you and that they would put their confidence in Christ this morning and trust him for their salvation. We love you and we praise you. And we thank you that you are in control. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.